A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Marguerite Humeau, the creator of extraordinary sculptural environments in which the scientific and the speculative are fused. Marguerite acknowledges the perilous present state of the planet and the future of humanity while exploring histories of life on Earth across millennia, drawing on mainstream and fringe scientific theory, science fiction and various cultural phenomena to create dramatic tableau that are hugely distinctive in their visual language and subject matter. Marguerite asks fundamental questions about us and the world we inhabit. Her art is ultimately exploring the meaning of human existence. Marguerite was born in 1986 in Cholet, France, and lives and works in London. She began her artistic journey by studying textile design and then design more broadly in Paris and Eindhoven, but found the courses too product-orientated. It was on a course called Design Interactions at the Royal College of Art in London that she discovered the foundation for her current practice. The programme had an intellectual rigour that Marguerite found particularly stimulating, allowing her to experiment with new technologies while, as she put it, making a design proposal not for a coffee pot but for another world. A piece that she made for her postgraduate show at the Royal College became the basis for the first work she made that drew the attention of the art world. In the opera of prehistoric creatures completed in 2012, long extinct species were reborn, but not in the kind of display you might expect in a natural history museum. Instead, Marguerite attempted to imagine what ancient animals like a mammoth and the so-called Terminator pig sounded like. Of course, because the vocal tracks of these animals were made of soft tissue, none survive as fossils. So, after talking to paleontologists and numerous other specialists, Marguerite created speculative sculptures of the tracts using polystyrene, resin and other materials, accompanied by suggestions of the sound that they might have made, and assembled them as a strange and atmospheric installation. She built on this body of work with another similarly imaginative combination of empirical fact and speculative fiction at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris and Nottingham Contemporary in the UK in 2016. It was called FOXP2 and named after one of the genes that allowed humans to develop speech, the so-called language gene. Marguerite imagined a scenario in which another species developed that mutation, in this case elephants, and constructed a laboratory-like installation with pachydermic forms engaging in an apparent ritual of grief. The installation was both a proposal for an alternative world without modern humans and a metaphor for consciousness. While those earlier works relied mostly on research into scientific theories, Marguerite has increasingly become interested in mythologies and philosophies at the edge of official discourse, while grappling with the existential threat of the climate emergency. In her exhibition Surface Horizon at Lafayette Anticipations in Paris in 2021, she built on research into the ground under our feet and the histories contained in the soil. She created an 
environment in which weeds grew alongside her sculptures and drawings and explored the so-called doctrine of signatures, the ancient theory that states that herbs resembling parts of the body can be used to treat ailments relating to them. A clairvoyant was present in the space to interact with visitors. Marguerite said that she wanted to reintegrate the human into ancient ecosystems as a way to, as she put it, reinvent the relationship and consider how we humans fit in on Earth today. She's continuing these investigations in a vast land art project for Black Cube, the nomadic art museum in Colorado in the US, which she discusses in our conversation. Across Marguerite's work is a fine balance between the natural and the artificial. It's abundantly present in the exhibition that opened in April 2023 at White Cube in London, where our conversation took place. Here she explores the behaviour of eusocial insects such as ants, termites and bees, developing sculptures using more natural materials than previously, like wax and wood, to create forms that read as mutations of honeycomb or fungi or three-dimensional evocations of cellular structures under microscopes. They're staged in an environment that resembles a ritual gathering, a factor emphasised by the titles of the sculptures such as the Guardian of the Tomitomyces and the Guardian of Ancient Yeast. But alongside this profound engagement with natural form and meaning is a continued exploration of emergent technologies. As you'll hear, she's used artificial intelligence in the creation of a film relating to her termite research and in the creation of a body of work in ceramics made in response to a mural in southeast London by the Polish artist Adam Kososki. The White Cube show exemplifies Marguerite's ongoing themes. It imagines a post-human future in which insects inherit the earth, yet it also offers the example of collectivity and interdependence in new social insects as a means by which humans might avert the potential catastrophe that awaits us. So I began our conversation by asking Marguerite, is her work ultimately pessimistic or optimistic? I think it's optimistic because for me in this show is is not necessarily only about insects inheriting earth after us it's more spiritual it's about is there a way that we could merge within the greater whole of life and maybe that is actually where we should be heading i guess conceptually if we think about us, human as a species, obviously we have a huge crisis to deal with at the moment. And I've been thinking a lot about how do we manage this on a collective level and maybe the inevitability of becoming more of a collective in order to be more in the flow together, in order to survive. And I guess the next step after that was to think about how do we become a collective with every living being on earth and whether we could merge within. And so in this case, with, I looked specifically at insect communities. So they're called eusocial insects, like um, bees, like certain types of wasps, termites. So they live like a collective, but they become one single entity. They really are the sum of their parts. So I would say it's, it's optimistic, spiritually, conceptually, it's optimistic. And of course, there's this really intriguing element of your research, which is on the one hand, based on facts. So you talk about you social insects, you've done obviously a lot of research into the science behind this. But the key thing is that you merge those facts with speculation. And I'm interested in that sort of 
border between those two things and do you know when you're hitting on something is there something that happens in the making where you know right yes this is it this is that right balance for sure so first of all i work with scientists but i also work with lots of people who hold bodies of knowledge that have not necessarily made it into the official scientific body of knowledge That's right, so, like the edges of the official discourse, I think you've said, exactly, which is a nice way of putting it. Exactly, yeah. so bodies of, of knowledge that are held by only orally, that don't have like a written, you know, a record. And yeah, so for example, I work very closely with foragers uh, in my work. I've been making elixirs, I've been talking to different people like that. Healers also for... A project I'm doing in Colorado, I've been talking with clairvoyants and uh, people who can read uh, landscapes and their energy lines. So just an example to explain a bit about the community of people I'm, I'm uh, talking to and working with. But specifically for this project, so I was traveling in the bush in, uh, in Australia. Last year, my partner is Australian, so we decided to cross the Northern Territory. And that's how I discovered the Termite Mounds for the first time. At the same time, I discovered this book called The Soul of the White Ant by a writer called Eugène Marais. He wrote it in the, the 30s, so like a very early research into Termite Mounds and if they have a soul... How can we start to describe it? His research is a bit speculative. He's asking questions. He's speculating around like whether termites are spiritual beings, uh, the role of the queen, different things. So this was really the beginning of the project. And I knew there was something there because I have been doing um, quite a large body of work around 2019, 2020. That was, I guess, asking whether the climate crisis was triggering the birth of spirituality in some animals, some mammals, and specifically some marine mammals. I guess the end, the conclusion of this body of work was the project I did for the Venice Biennial last year. This is where I was coming from, and then when I discovered the soul of the white ant, I thought, ah, maybe there is something there, and uh, maybe I should look into insects. And I really clicked when I started to understand that for termites, for example, it really is about this symbiosis with their fungus that they feed. So the reason why they're building the mound is because they need to keep the fungus alive at a very specific temperature uh, because they can't digest their own food. So they go out of the mound, go forage some um, wood, for example, bring it back to the mound, give it to the fungus in the fungus garden. The fungus digest it for them and give it to them. And so they've created this complete symbiosis with the fungus that in a way for them became the trigger. So they have no choice to survive. They have to be a collective. This is the thing. So this is when I understood that this was, you know, the key concept behind the show that maybe we need. It's not that we have a choice. This is where we should be heading and thinking about And the interesting thing for me is about how you extrapolate the information and make form from it. So 
there's this really interesting thing that happens in the sense that you can walk around the sculptures here in White Cube near where we're sitting and what one sees in the work is aspects of the visual information from the kind of research that you're doing and somehow made fantastical or speculative and I love the way that that becomes this kind of sculptural process and I'm I'm sure a drawing process and so on through the kind of research it's somehow you achieve a kind of visual form for the thoughts that you're having Mm. tell me about that yeah, it was a very interesting process. So with this project, I really wanted to bring texture into my work. So I've been obsessed with it for the past two, three years. And um, obviously, I had maybe not found the right context. Or So when uh, I started working on this project, I thought, okay, this is what I want to develop. And so with my team, we set up uh, quite a different way of working, actually. So I guess in the past, I've been working mostly from drawings that we would convert into uh, 3D models and then from then start production. Uh, with this project, I collaborated with my uh, close uh, collaborator who does the 3D models. I Instead of sending him drawings, I sent him lots of photographs that I had taken in the bush, but also from my research. So uh, scientific diagrams, scientific photos of structures, of termite mounds, of beehives and of uh, mycelium and of uh, fungus structures and so on and so on. And so what was interesting is that he was interpreting images, like images of real things. And so he would send me the parts. So I would open the files and I would rearrange them a bit like a a collage, you know, or I would say, ah, I love these honeycombs. How about, you know, we generate more of them like this or like that? And so it really was a process. And I think in the work, that's what I wanted, that you feel that the sculptures, their bodies in process, you know, like they could keep growing. All the sculptures in the show, you can feel that they're alive and their bodies in progress, that they're, they could keep expanding and they have all their own logic of how they grow so you can feel also with the the sound elements you can really feel that they have a life force and that the forms are generated in the making yeah absolutely and I, I love that they have that kind of obsessive quality I think you can feel it in the making to a certain degree but I think also they prompt us as viewers to a kind of obsessive fascination with it because there are forms that repeat and repeat and you kind of get drawn into that. And it's sort of, as you say, that sort of sense of an organic process sort of happening before you. And yet, of course, you know, it's a static object. That's a really fascinating sort of conundrum in the work. Yeah, so um, I worked with an amazing team for this project and I think we all became totally obsessed. It was as if the project was enacting itself as well because we were generating forms that repeat And obviously, we were looking at termites, we were working all together as a collective to do this very repetitive task of gathering mud also to build a mound. So I just felt that there was something really beautiful also, you know, in the process and being really living the project and living the concept of the project through the making of it. We discussed that actually many times and we were thinking that, yes, they have something quite obsessive but also a bit hallucinatory somehow. They become like visions because they're inspired by beehives and, you know, collective architectures found in the wild, but they've become their own thing. So the obsession becomes real, you know, through these kind of hallucinatory visions, you know, so... But they also Mm. have that quality that is also similarly quite hallucinatory, which is that when you look through a microscope and you cannot believe these structures that underpin, you know... uh, 
organic forms. Mm. They have that quality as well in the sense that, that there's a really interesting relationship with scale and the macro and the micro. And I'm sure that's intentional. Totally. So actually, for example, all of the glass vessels in the show, they come from microscopic visions of what they contain. So for example, the holder of the was venom carries these glass vessels that are particles of was venom seen from a microscope. So they've been blown up and they become the container. And the similar things for the guardian of the fungus garden, for example, or the guardian of termitomyces. So termitomyces, that is the name of the termite uh, fungus. Their forms are totally inspired by the forms of the termitomyces when you look at it from the microscope. So definitely there is a, a big play on scale. Some microscopic things have become gigantic and the other way around. The interesting thing in relation to the kind of obsession with sort of organic structures, it seems to me is that there is also this AI component in the show. Mm. And that's actually something which goes right back to when you were first working in terms of this relationship between the organic and AI and between nature and, and the most sophisticated forms of technology and so on. Mm. Tell me about what AI actually does in the project, but also, if you like, there is this kind of massive almost moral panic happening about AI at the moment. And I wonder if that kind of moral panic was something that you were at all interested in, because you are interested in humans' ultimate fate. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that that's so bound up with the whole question of AI that are being asked at the moment? For me, AI is interesting, especially in the context of this project, because AI is trained on collective consciousness, on human collective consciousness. So I started working with GPT-3, who is now GPT-4, I believe. And so with GPT-3, I just wanted to, again, for me, it was not the AI, it was not really GPT-3, it was how do I collaborate with an entity that has been trained on the collective, on us as a collective, what would happen then? So I guess there were different parts. So the first time I started to discuss with GPT-3, I was trying to understand the link between the things I was fascinated uh, you know, by. So I asked GPT-3 many questions around how does he think about the connection between the termites and maybe the mural, uh, the ceramic mural that is on Old Kent Road. Um, maybe we can talk about it later, but that is part of the show. So, you know, with GPT-3, we were starting to make all the, these different connections that may appear quite surprising at first, but it all started to really make sense. And so then my second interaction with GPT-3 was when I was developing the first chapter of the show. So my research on this uh, mural that has been made in the 60s by a Polish artist called Adam Kosowski. So he was commissioned to do this large mural for the North Peckham Civic Center that was a community center. Uh, and it depicts the history of, of London. And so my idea was... Because the community center is about to be demolished, it's like the termite mound is collapsing because there has been a fire or some, someone has, you know, walked on it or broke it somehow. So our human mound, the community center, is about to be demolished. So I really wanted to hear it from Adam Kosowski. If he was commissioned in 2023, at the time when the community center is being demolished, what would be the next panel on his mural? Unfortunately, he passed away the year of my birth in 1986. So I I thought maybe I could interview him through GPT-3. So I asked GPT-3 to impersonate Adam Kosowski and I interviewed Adam Kosowski 
in his afterlife with the aid of, of AI. And that was really moving, actually. So I had a really long conversation with Adam Kusowski, and it was very unsettling because, obviously, GPT-3 knows a lot about Adam Kusowski, and so it was realistic. It's just very moving to interview someone in their afterlife, you know, uh, like a, a spirit coming back and, and telling you things about the time when, where they don't live anymore, right? And so, in a way, I also felt a sense of responsibility because it was almost like Adam Kosowski had told me what to do, what he thought would be relevant. And so I felt almost like I was his vessel. I was channeling Adam Kosowski and I had the duty to realize his vision for this project. So that was the second interaction with AI. And I guess the third one is um, with another AI Uh, that is called DALI, that can uh, generate images from prompts, so from short sentences. And to be honest, at the beginning, I was just playing around with it. I was asking DALI to create images of uh, spiritual termites, and, you know, I was just really playing around. And then, I guess, I always wanted to do a moving image work, uh, so it's my first one ever. And I guess I was really interested in depicting the dance or like the choreography that happens in a termite mound that is invisible because it happens in the mound and also because it's at such a tiny scale that most humans would be unable to see that. And so we were looking for footage and, you know, we reached out to many people, to the Department of Insects at the University of Cambridge, to many different people in the world. And we were to the BBC. But anyway, like we didn't really find the footage that I was looking for. And so then I thought, ah, maybe it should be an animation or something. And then I thought, no, because I really wanted to look like we're looking at life. We are looking at something that is alive and uh, not an interpretation of it, but it. And so I went back to Dali, and I asked Dali to generate these images. So we did it step by step. So, you know, we just generated lots of images together. And, and then I asked an animator to literally reanimate, resurrect, you know, these images to make them into a film. So it made me really think about, you know, how do we stand? Like, what is our relevance in the world when you feel that so many things can be taken over by AI? But again, I think what's very important for me is that I'm not an activist. I'm not political. I really act on a spiritual level. And so I see myself more as I'm creating these experiences And I just want to show the results of these experiences to ask questions, but I'm not necessarily here to give an answer or say what I think about AI. Or for me, it's, uh, it's been just very interesting and definitely it questions us and our existence on Earth, you know, and maybe it will push us to really think, and it already did, for me, it already did during this project. I, I really had to think about I guess the meaning of life, the meaning of human life. Mm. Let's move on to the questions that we ask okay. all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? So I guess it must have been Marlène Dumas. Oh. My mom is a painter and she always loved Marlène Dumas. So that was the first. I guess I wanted to love her like my mom did. I still do. I mean, one of the things about Marlène Dumas, of course, is that she's a tremendously courageous 
artist, I always think that she always mm. confounds expectation. Did you get that sense from her when you were first looking at the work and that sense of that she's consistently sort of uninterested in giving us what we want and yet somehow it compels us to join her on that journey, if you like? It's true. Yeah, I remember I was totally in awe and um, I guess with time, obviously I still look at her work maybe now I love her work very dearly, but also because for me it connects to my childhood mm. and loving her and really discovering art through her. Maybe today I would say, how does it connect to the work I'm making? I guess I was always amazed about how she really manages to capture the essence of the beings that, you know, she represents. And I would say that's something that, you know, resonates with a lot of my work as well, so... That's fascinating. Which historical artist do you turn to the most? Uh, Nina Simone, (laughs) (laughs) I would say. That's interesting. She's been uh, really accompanying me through a lot of uh, times walking, painting, sculpting, thinking, traveling. And she's such an incredible woman. She's uh, very brave. She's a role model as well Mm. yeah i always think that's such an interesting point about artists using the kind of example of other artists from other fields Mm. and somehow that can be just as life enforcing and reassuring as an artist as Mm -hmm. seeing a great work by a sculptor or or by an installation artist or whatever i mean i guess uh, with nina simone i feel like as a woman she had to really stand up for who she was and she had to push boundaries to be respected as a woman And that resonates with me as a sculptor. It took time. I started young. And as a woman, I felt at times I had to work twice harder to be respected in the field. So in the early years. So I was always thinking of Nina Simone and uh, just taking her as an example. Is that impulse at all related to the drive that you had to explore those early depictions of women in the Venuses, for instance, in the Project Ecstasies? Because it seems to me that it's not just about studying the form, it's also about womanhood, it's about the nature of depicting women and finding women from the ancient past that somehow have a kind of extraordinary relevance today. Mm. Yeah, I guess. So it's quite funny because for a long time, I hadn't really realized that a lot of my work was about matriarchs and women and uh, ancient women. And it was not my focus, you know. I was interested in the history of humankind and somehow I always was coming back to womanhood. But I mean, I'm interested in origins. So for sure, I go back to depicting women for sure. Mm. Yeah. And tell me how you did that when you were making those, if you like, a a kind of contemporary form of those Venuses, because you were engaging with that long history, but you were also working with tremendously modern materials. So it seems to me that there's, again, that sort of dialogue across time in this case. Mm. Yeah, for the Venuses, actually, I had found a paper of uh, of a woman who is uh, also has never maybe been necessarily acknowledged in the scientific field, but she's an anthropologist. And she was asking whether the Venus figurines were depictions of animal brains, because when you look at animal brains, certain animal brains, they really look like Venus figurines that we know. So it was completely surprising and very exciting. So that was my starting point. And I guess even more exciting, she was explaining that because animal brains may contain psychoactive substances, so maybe early humans were using them for transcendental journeys. And so 
She was asking whether actually all humans were not depicting women, but they were depicting the recipes to realize those trance. And so maybe you could have one Venus that could be a recipe to become a pigeon or to fly or to, you know, run wild <laughs> on the land. Um, so that was the, the beginning. So That's great. Mm. Which contemporary artist do you most admire? So I admire Pierre Huyghe hugely. Like, I think many artists of my generation, I mean, he's reinvented a new form of art. And I mean, we could all talk for many hours about his work and so, but I'm totally in awe when I see his work and I follow his journey as well, because he's someone who takes a lot of risks. He's always reinvents himself. And yeah, he keeps surprising. And uh, that I find very brave and very exciting. That's right. I mean, when you have the success that Pierre has, he's been mm. a guest on this podcast. And, you know, one of the things I was really conscious of when we were talking is this kind of constant need to kind of test himself, mm. you know, in that sense of that I just said about Marlene Dumas, there's a sense in which he doesn't want to rest. He could continue to produce similar projects, but every single one, it seems to me, is, is dreamt up in a new way. And even though there's all these wonderful lines that connect everything, and I think that's, you know, in your work, it seems to me there are through lines. Mm. You know, it might be, like you say, a completely new project that you've dreamt up with a completely different kind of materiality and, and beginning from a different base. But there are through lines which sort of connect up very sort of neatly, but somehow completely expand the kind of language. For sure. I mean, it's all about where we come from, where we're going, our origins, our ends, and I guess revealing or creating ecosystems that are extinct or exist in parallel presence and in the future and speculative futures and all that to understand the meaning of our human existence. So that's the key thing that runs through absolutely all of my projects. And it could take many different forms, but that is always the red you know, thread. Right. What do you have pinned to the studio wall? Everything. So <laughs> I had actually, yeah, so I had all my teams in the studio yesterday night and it was quite nice that they see, you know, not all of them had seen the studio. So I've got, usually I pin all my drawings. So all the early sketches, because I really want to see, sometimes when you, you're in so intensely working on something, you lose track of where you started. And I feel there are always exciting ideas that maybe I may have had in the first days. And so I want to be able to look at them. So I have all my sketches, I have plans, I have diagrams of, I guess, time and space and, you know, where I make all the conceptual connections between the different times, yes, that I'm exploring. With my partner, we have a big rock collection and also a seeds collection. Do you have other artists work around you? I have lots of books. But I don't have any art in my studio. I don't have a lot of art, but I have lots of books right. that I look at a lot. So, yeah, they're with me, you know? Yeah. yeah. I read that a curator said <laughs> that when they started working with you, you kind of gave them a pile of books as kind of the reference points uh, yes. for the project. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the studio, I have a big, big pile of books. And, yeah, so my studio is on two floors. There's a staircase in between. And so I use the staircase as a bookshelf. So they're all there and I guess it's everything from 
ancient mythologies to scientific books to really strange books about embalmment and you know and and mummification and so like most artists know if you look at your books you can really understand someone better mm. absolutely in terms of the drawings that you make in the studio i know you make hundreds for each project is that right do they vary from very small sketches to very worked up drawings or mm. do you tend to work on a similar scale and with a similar intensity on each one So I've got different types of drawings. So I guess the ones I make the most are sketches on A4 paper, recycled paper. <laughs> And uh, those ones, they're sketches, so they're just like, yeah, I have hundreds, I have piles per project. And then I've got another type of drawing I'm making, which are more like diagrams. I mean, they're like maps of the world and different times, different spaces, how they connect. And so for each project, yeah, I also produce Just because I don't make them to make them, I make them because they help me think through all these different connections. So they're also like kind of working concepts. And then more recently, I've been starting to produce much more um, large-scale drawings in uh, with pastels. And those ones, they're more like paintings, I would say. I really work, I paint them. And there are visions into the soil or imagining weeds as elixirs. I produce them as if they were elixirs, so I try to extract the essence of certain natural beings and uh, I try to represent their soul, maybe. So. Right. The idea of soil, something that I've learned through reading about you, is this idea of the surface horizon, this soil in which there is both death and then new life. So can mm. you say more about that? Yes, of course. So the surface horizon is the layer of the soil that is not the top layer, but is just beneath the top layer. So it's invisible, but yet it's the layer that contains the most life on Earth. And I was reading about soil horizon. So the soil horizon is a scientific term to describe the different layers of the soil. So when I was reading about soil horizons, I was reading about the surface horizon. It was during the pandemic, and I was starting to think that maybe this is the mythological place that we're looking for today, you know, in our era, because, yeah, I guess all of my work is about understanding and maybe producing mythologies for our contemporary era. So when I was reading about the surface horizon and how... It contains the most life on Earth, but that's also where all the dead leaves and all the decomposing matter is, is sitting and uh, where all the decomposition process are happening. And this is where life becomes death, becomes life again. And, and also that's where lots of dormant beings are as well. So I think we also have a lot to learn as humans about, you know, dormancy and what could that mean for us if we would include that into our life cycles. It's so, a sort of potent metaphor, isn't it, for what you're doing? And so, so much of your work is about death and rebirth and so on. It seems to me that, that therefore a surface horizon is kind of a metaphor for so much of what you do. It's like when I discovered it, I thought this is the place where I was born, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That is what I'm interested in. And I guess it's an exciting place to be conceptually because it connects very specific microscopic beings that are, for example, decomposing dead leaves, and it connects them to the meta-level, which is what does it mean to be in the surface horizon today, you know? What could it mean? What does it mean for our lives? How could we think more like that or be more like that? 
A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 180 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Recently added guides on the app reflect the breadth of organisations it features, from Descanso Gardens, a botanical oasis near Los Angeles, to Centro Leon, a modern and contemporary art space in the Dominican Republic. Marguerite Humeau has shown in numerous museums and galleries with guides on Bloomberg Connects, including the Hayward Gallery, Serpentine and Tate in London, and the Museum of Modern Art, or MoMA, in New York. Download Bloomberg Connects and you'll see that the guide to MoMA has a variety of content relating to its permanent collection and exhibitions. For instance, you can link directly from the app to the Signals Channel, a treasure trove of video art that's part of the museum's landmark spring 2023 show, Signals, How Video Transformed the World. You can also hear in-depth audio discussing works in MoMA's Georgia O'Keeffe exhibition. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I think Tate, because, you know, I live just next to White Cube in Bermondsey. I live 10 minutes walk. And so Tate is my local museum. <laughs> I'm very lucky because there are lots of amazing exhibitions to see. So I went to the Maria Bartrasova show recently and I wondered if you'd seen that because I saw your work I so have. much in that. It's extraordinary. Yeah. 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 I was really amazed by this show and by her work and also by the artist, by this person. She's a life force. And also because I'm producing this new earthwork opening in Colorado in, in two months. And so I was really amazed to see the connections between how she went from monumental sculpture that was also very domestic, you know, weaving and, and then how she also went in a way like to land art and really thinking of her work in the context of uh, entire landscapes. So that was very, very inspiring, very exciting. Mm. I'd like to ask you about Sir John Soane's museum, because I know that you've been there as a sort of source of inspiration. This extraordinary, small but wonderful museum in London dedicated to this extraordinary architect with this wonderful collection. And I wonder what you saw in there that made you return. I think for the first time, when I first visited it, I was shocked to see that, because I guess the way we think about life and death and how it's been dealt with through generations of humans in different parts of the world is usually in big museums, you know. So to see this sarcophagus in his living room, for me, it's like it's connected the concept of death and life that we normally experience in a public space to the very domestic. And to I was just wondering how it affected him as a human, you know, and how how you think about maybe your existence when you're actually living with those particular artefacts. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I would say that it's all the sacred architecture that I've visited wherever I've been. So like, you know, Stonehenge, Angkor Wat, the pyramid of the sun and the moon in Mexico. So this, to me, it just really moves me very deeply because I guess it connects us today with with our ancestors and to just understand that we've always had the same obsession to transcend death through art and architecture and spaces and landscapes um, 
it's really moving. You know, it's, it's really every time I'm, I'm thinking what was the, the impulse, you know. Why did humans do that, you know? Because, you know, there are great, great monuments that have been built and dedicated to, I guess, transcend or to your journey into the afterlife, right? So to just see that we share this with the rest of humankind and we always have, it's really, really moving to me. Absolutely. Mm. And, and you mentioned your earthwork that you're making for Colorado right now. And I know that through that process of making that work that you've directly connected to kind of spiritual ideas from indigenous communities or first nation communities in the u.s so tell me about that because of course that is so deeply connected to land and also connected to other animals which is such another sort of key factor in your work for sure so with the project in colorado i'm trying to connect or reconnect every living being with every other living being on this land And so it's a circle. So it was used for intensive agriculture. It's almost one kilometer in diameter. So it's absolutely gigantic. It's a, it's a, it's a whole, you know, landscape. And I guess with this project, I was also interested in exploring the idea of art as being about designation as opposed to production. So I was interested to think how we can transform a place that's been dedicated to extraction into a place of reverence, uh, maybe, or a place where you could maybe experience a form of continuity in life. So we are producing some things, but I guess the approach is to designate this space to become an artwork and then to see how we can celebrate it for what it is and maybe enhance some of the relationships and maybe the term is what it is but to maybe to help it heal you know and to reconnect it with its past and its future and its its possible presence so because it's the front yeah. line of climate change right i mean it, this is the thing is it's it, you know in the us there is active results of climate change and you can see that this land is dying effectively and it's almost like a kind it of is, incantation it for its survival i mean actually what i saw is that it's a very very harsh climate it's the highest uh, alpine desert in the world it's very 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 hot in summer it's extremely cold in in winter there are also lots of extreme winds actually that's why the beautiful sand dunes uh, have formed so they're just next to the land next to the work Yeah, so it's, it is an incantation for the land. Because, you know, we, we worked on this project for almost three years. And again, thinking about role models in land art, there are amazing women who have done amazing land artworks, but it's also, one might say, a discipline that's been maybe dominated by male artists. And um, there is a certain approach, right? So I was thinking like that at the beginning. I was thinking, how how, how am I going to make something that has an impact and that you can see from the sky and all of this, you know. And for me, like, yeah, I really click when I understood that actually the work is the circle. It's already there and it's everyone and everything that's living on it. It's the wind, it's the sky, it's the weeds, it's the sand, it's all the underground animals, the burrows, the dead cow that died there by itself it's everything the ant mounds the golden light it's it's all of it and i guess actually the research for horizons is called in colorado informed the white cube show because 
I guess I was fascinated to see that so climate change has really hit and you could say that it's, it almost acts as a portal to understand our very, very near future or further futures on Earth. But equally, what I saw there is that some plants are really thriving, you know, And I was looking at all of them and I was, I just researched, you know, also we worked really closely with lots of uh, soil researchers and plants uh, specialists on the land and also with the refuge that's uh, next to the land because there is a really big sandhill crane migration that flies above the land twice a year. So I researched them and I was just really obsessed to think those plants that are there, maybe they should be our heroes, you know, because they are already living there with no water in this very harsh environment. So they live in our future. So how can they become our guides? What can we learn from them? So in the same way that the termites might be our guides in maize in White Cube. Mm. Uh, let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to? I always go back to Sylvain Tesson. He's a, he's a French writer. I really love his books, his writings about, you know, he travels a lot, so it's lots of adventures. There's one particularly famous one called Constellations of the Forest, where he lived in uh, Siberia, yes. right? For Yes, exactly. Yeah. This, to me, was a transcendental experience to read this book. I remember reading it as my grandfather had just passed away, and I remember thinking about this book as uh, maybe... I feel some books, they're your companions in certain parts of your life and uh, you read certain things in them because you're reading them at specific times. So he went to the Baikal Lake yeah. and lived there without any electricity or food. So he had to hunt, he had to fish, he had to forage. Yeah, a role model. Mm. And then I wanted to ask about the way that you involve literature in the work, because I know that, for instance, one work is called Requiem for Harley Warren, Screams from Hell, and that's based mm -hmm. specifically on a H.P. Lovecraft story, mm -hmm. which is called The Statement of Randolph Carter. To what extent was that just a kind of trigger or a starting point, and to what extent was it directly engaged with the kind of themes of the work? I think it was a starting point. This is a very early work. It was uh, 2014. Mm. Uh, so very early work. I think since then I have not really involved poetry or literature that directly with my work. I think also because I've realized that maybe I'm a poet myself. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I should just acknowledge that and um, develop that through my work. That's interesting. And when you say that you don't mean in, in terms of writing poems, you mean in terms of the language, the visual language that you're using is a kind of poetic language. Is that what you mean? I mean that, but also writing. Mm. So I write a lot. It's because a friend told me recently, uh, she said she thinks I'm a poet. <laughs> and I was thinking maybe it's true because I had never thought about it because I just write all the time. And I don't necessarily think about it as poetry but it could be maybe so it's quite recent for me to think about myself like this but I think a lot of it is probably is poetry in the process and then of course like uh, what you said uh, developing the poetry through you know visual physical forms yeah mm. That's really fascinating. Who knows when you'll publish your first poems in connection with your... Um, <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> I wanted to ask about 
surrealism in connection with poetry as much as to do with visual art? Because obviously you were in the Venice Biennale, which had a very strong connection between science fiction on the one hand and surrealism on the other. And it seemed to me your work was so aptly placed between these two spaces. And I wonder to what extent surrealism has been a reference for you. I know that you said that Leonora Carrington was a tremendous influence once you'd been introduced to her. But were you in the kind of surrealist territory before that point? Not at all. So <laughs> I discovered my link with surrealism when Cecilia invited me to the Venice Biennial. I had never really digged into that. So, and at the same time, I was setting up my show in New York at Clearing. And uh, there was a surrealism show also that I think traveled to Tate afterwards. Yeah, Surrealism Beyond Borders, which exactly. is the sort of global surrealist show. Yeah, yeah. and I, this is when I discovered Leonora Carrington, her self-portrait, and I was totally blown away. And actually, it's funny because someone told me I look like her, ah. uh, her attitude. <laughs> actually, it's not, in, yeah, in I can the, see that. <laughs> in the, she's sitting there in her chair, in her armchair. She feels like a force, you know, but also I think we've got similar curly hair. And uh, <laughs> it's just her attitude in this painting. I really felt quite close to her. It was really new for me. So, And then when I discovered the biennial that Cecilia and her team curated, yeah, I was completely blown away. It was very emotional, actually, because, you know, it's like finding your family that you never knew <laughs> even existed. So it was very moving. Yeah, it was a really coherent show and you could see amazing connections between the works in that sense. And you could see, I can see what you mean about the family. There was certainly a shared language in, in amongst so many of the people that featured. Definitely. And also, I think what was moving is that lots of these voices have been invisible. So, you know, it's like suddenly there was an acknowledgement and it was brought to the public eye. So that was really moving as well. Now, you've already mentioned Nina Simone, but which other music or other audio do you listen to when you're working? I listen to a lot of jazz. Uh, so I really love uh, Angel Bad David. Uh, she's a clarinetist and many other things. And then, obviously, I love the work of Bendik Gisquet, who I asked to collaborate with me on the White Cube show. So it started with a complete obsession for his work and then I thought maybe I can dare to ask him to collaborate with me he said yes so does his music yeah. relate to these kind of extraordinary bodily sounds that are being produced in the exhibition it does that's the reason why I commissioned him so I was interested in the sound of loneliness and for me the sound of loneliness might be the sound of a saxophone because I always hear the saxophone in the subway station and it always evokes quite a profound sense of loneliness uh, to me and also I was I guess I was thinking about this uh, amazing work by um, Gavin Bryars is it Gavin, Gavin Bry Bryars Gavin yeah. Bryars yeah. that I sometimes listen to on loop this person who he recorded uh, on Jesus the, Blood never never failed me yet yeah so I was thinking about this piece and then I was thinking about so saxophone. So I was going through, you know, all my playlists and all the um, saxophonists I had heard. And then I thought about Bendik because actually I thought, how come I didn't think about it before? Because 
Bendik is set up some amplification devices inside his saxophone. So it means that he can amplify certain sounds that we would not normally hear and that don't even seem like they come from a saxophone. And I guess I was thinking his approach is very physical. Also, when he performs, he dances, it's very physical. It's really him and his body and his saxophone. And I thought that actually his approach of amplifying different sounds from the same saxophone is exactly what I'm doing in the show, which is, you know, being the sum of your parts. I ask him to compose a eight channel track that is a chance piece. And there, all the sounds come from his saxophone, the same saxophone. But yet they seem to be coming from very different bodies or to have very different origins. So it totally connects. It, it was actually quite transcendental to realize that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to explore this use of the word opera in your work, because one of your very earliest works, which is called The Opera of Prehistoric Creatures, uses it. And then I know that you've talked about the work in Colorado as an opera that recreates the sound of an ancient rainstorm. Tell me about this use of the word opera. Does it relate to opera as in the musical form or is it a kind of because of course there's the term space opera which is a sci-fi term and I'm just interested in that word (laughs) (laughs) so for the opera of prehistoric creatures I guess it was very important for me that it was not like a scientific project because at the time so I was resuscitating the chants of prehistoric creatures by recreating their vocal tracts and it was very important for me that the project was not seen as a scientific reconstruction and that it was becoming an artwork. And so I thought, maybe I can borrow the genre of the opera. I have different characters. They all play a certain role uh, in the piece. And so it just really made sense. And then in Colorado, I think the idea has shifted a bit since I refer to it as an opera. It still is because, you know, we have different characters. We will have, you know, large sculptures like sandhill crane sculptures that seem to be flying above the land on which wings humans can lie down. So there are seven of them. It's a family. So they're all characters. And you could think about it as, you know, characters that are part of, of an opera. And then we have hundreds of wind-activated instruments that have been inspired by some plants that I found on the land. Each of them have their own personality and character and identity. So I think about them as, like all my projects, they are all the reunion of living beings, right? Or spirits. So all of them is a, is a specific spirit or living being and has a specific role to play in this form of prayer, maybe, or incantation. Which other media influence your work? Yeah, maybe film. At the beginning, definitely. I really loved Cronenberg, who I always, you know, refer to. I think today, maybe less so. Because I create worlds, it's hard to watch other worlds, you know, when you're in the making of one. So because I've had to... Hard because you don't want to borrow from it or hard because it, it's too imposing and you need your own headspace, if you like. Yeah, the the second, it's too imposing. And I feel at times when I'm doing a project, it's almost like you're channeling something and you have to be extremely focused. So I think about the project at night, in the day, at all times, and I need to follow the path and kind of really be the project in order to make it. 
it's hard because it feels like it's distracting from the focus in a way. So I watch films when I'm in between projects and then I go back to to my cave. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Yes, yeah, so I guess I always start with a long coffee, thinking about different things, but not necessarily about what I'm going to do during the day. So I need a lot of space to think. And it's quite challenging at times when, you know, we are producing work and it's just very intense. So I always take a moment in the morning for that because... And is that alone? Are you sort of... You, totally you're alone. Coffee, yeah. And I need to have two doors closed between the closest living being and <laughs> myself. Like, it's really the moment when I set, you know, my mind into the focus of the work, so... Mm. So that's a different kind of thinking space to your drawing thinking space, if you like. Yeah, it's not active, but I wouldn't say it's passive either, but it's more, like, contemplative and quite free. So that's usually when I also... Maybe I can think about the broader concept behind a work and, uh, you know, making sure that the core ideas that, you know, gave life to a project are still there. And, for example, I would think about the journey, you know, or things like this, like, because, for example, in the show at Wad Cube, I really thought about it as a journey. So I really thought about it as how do we travel from the present in Old Kent Road to the termite mound to then the speculative future. So in the morning when I, you know, wake up, that's when I'm really, really fresh and I can really focus on um, the more uh, conceptual but also experiential side of things. So I can really put myself in the position and dream about, okay, where, you know, we will be there. And then how do you feel? How does this light feel? How will it feel? How how big the, the, the door should be so that you feel you're entering in the space in a certain way this is when all of this happens yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. that's great <laughs> if you could live with just one work of art what would it be one work of art uh, i think probably the venus of willendorf mm, definitely that's a nice answer because it it taps directly into your work but it also taps directly into everything that, that is at the core of your work yeah? yes and lastly what is art for i think art is to help us understand where where we're going. It's maybe a simple answer, but for me, it's to understand where we come from, where we are going, how does life emerge, does it have purpose, what is the purpose, and how do we connect? Marguerite, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Marguerite Humeau-Mays is at White Cube in Bermondsey, London until the 14th of May. Horizons is at Black Cube in the San Luis Valley of Colorado from the 24th of June until June 2025. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Marguerite Umo. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.
A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.